Right, guys? I can tell you're excited. All right. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2, one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. As we look at the historical day, hope is born. The day we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. That day is the greatest moment in history. In 1903, the Wright brothers had been trying to get their flying machine off the ground. You know the story at Kitty Hawk and all that went on. They were desperately trying to get that thing to fly. And they finally, they sent a, a telegram to their sister, Catherine, and said, we got it off the ground. We flew our flying machine. It flew 120 feet. We will be home for Christmas. She runs to the editor of the local newspaper and shows him the telegram. He reads it. He goes, oh, that's great. The boys will be home for Christmas. He missed it, didn't he? They were excited. They got their machine off the ground. And I think so many times what happens is we miss the message as a society and all that goes on around us. We miss the message. And the message is this, that Christmas brings hope. You notice the series we're doing is when history met hope. Romans 15, 13, now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. You see, on Christmas, what God did is not only step into history, and history met God, God Emmanuel with us, God with us, but God knew our greatest need. Had our greatest need been we needed education, he would have sent an educator. Our greatest need was liberty. Physically, he would have sent a warrior, a reformer. Our greatest need as human beings has been, since Adam, forgiveness. We need to be forgiven for rebellion against God. You see, the Jewish people, the time of Christ, his own followers, his own siblings, to this day, the Jewish people still are looking for the Messiah to come and to overthrow all rulers and set up an earthly kingdom. If you read the Gospels closely, Jesus said over and over again, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this earth. It is a heavenly kingdom. And he gave us the great principles of that kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. Christmas is the message that God brought hope in the person of God himself, Jesus Christ. So today I want us to look as we celebrate, and this is a magical time. I'm like Peter. I, I love Christmas music uh, of any kind. And I just, uh, it's the only time of the year I listen to WRVR. I turn it on and just kind of let it go. I love all kinds of Christmas music. I love my, I was messing with Mary last night. We got this toy. It's a uh, little reindeer. If, you, reindeer. if you press its paw, it plays, please, uh, it plays, uh, Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Well, it was, we got it out of the attic this year, and, and my granddaughter, Emerson, loves it. She just over and over pushes that paw. We got it, and put it in, and she said, Granny, I think, I think it needs, needs batteries. So I put batteries in it, and now you turn on, Grandma got run over by a reindeer, and it is so like Mary's like, please turn it off. And I was just walking around, clutching it to my chest and pressing that paw, and I'd lean over to Mary and say, let's sing it, baby. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. I love all kinds of Christmas music, but what I love most about this holiday is that I know I have hope. I was officiating at a funeral this week, and I told them again, I love to do funerals because I look people in the eye who are hurting, and, can I, and I can tell them where they can find hope in the person of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at the historical setting, the prophetic setting, and the humble setting. And one of the things I want you to notice, if you look quickly at your outline, you're going to see something that's repeated three times, three different ways. God reminds us he brought hope in a feed trough. He brought hope in a manger. Not the way we might bring it. Not the way we would think this is the way to, that the great hope of all mankind and history is going to be met. 
in a feed trough behind an inn where the animals hung out. All you could smell is feces, and it's stinky, it's nasty. And God said, in this manger, in this feed trough, I bring the hope of mankind, God with us. So let's look first at a Savior is born. That great passage, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Three people I want you to notice, or a couple of things I want you to notice. Number one, I want us to look at Caesar for a moment. Augustus Caesar. The name literally means the majestic one, or the one that's highly favored. Interesting, last week as we were examining Mary, notice she was described as the one that was highly favored by God. Caesar Augustus declared himself the one who is highly favored. As a matter of fact, one of the titles that he bore, and I love the irony, and I love the message that God is sending us here. One of the titles that Caesar Augustus gave himself he was known as the Savior of the world. Don't miss the irony here. Here he is, the most powerful man in the world. He declares himself to be Savior of the world, and God uses him to get a census to take place so Joseph and Mary can get to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy that God had given hundreds of years before so that the true Savior of the world could be born in a feed trough. It was not Caesar Augustus. There is a great message here. Since 27 B.C., Rome, the Roman Empire, had been under what was known as Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There was no war going on. But even one of their own philosophers at the time, a Stoic philosopher, Epictetus, wrote these words, quote, While the emperor, Augustus, may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which man yearns more than for outward peace. He might declare that there's outward peace. But the only one who could bring peace was the one who laid in that little feed trough because he is the prince of peace. He is God with us, Emmanuel. See, Caesar was ruling the world, but God was in charge. Proverbs 21.1 is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, and it says this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He, God, turns it wherever he wishes. See, we look around and we look at history Rulers come and rulers go. And even as bad as we look at the world now, we think there's no hope. There is hope, but only in the king of kings. There will be many kings. They will come and they will go. But when the dust settles at the end, when eternity rises, when it's all said and done, there's one kingdom. It's the kingdom of the Most High God, and his son rules it. And only it will last forever. The baby in the feed trough was the savior of the world. He was the king of kings. He was the eternal God. Look at verse 4 for just a moment. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered as a census with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. You see, God used Caesar to get Joseph and Mary 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy that the Savior would be born of the of he would be a descendant of David, and he would be born of a virgin, and he would be born at a place called Bethlehem. Yes, Caesar wasn't ruling, but God was in charge. So he got Joseph 
fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, a human Savior, not an angel, a Jewish Savior, not a Gentile, one of the family of David, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. God used Caesar, again, just as part of his great plan to make it all work. Joseph was willing. We didn't talk much about Joseph, never do. We talk about Mary, we talk about her faith last week, we talk about the whole setting, but Joseph was a godly man because by Jewish law, he was engaged to Mary. And that would be the same for us as a marriage without consummation. She was still a virgin. They had not slept together. And she shows up pregnant by Jewish law. He could have put her away, got a legal writ of divorcement, and he would have been innocent. He could have even had her stoned to death as an adulteress. But what he did was without us being it being recorded for us in Scripture, you simply seen being obedient to God and saying, all right, I'll do it. That would be a tough deal, but he was a godly man. She was a godly woman, and they, they submitted to the will of God. And then the census comes up, they just go to Bethlehem because that's what they're supposed to do, not knowing exactly everything that God was going to do. Our, one of our former presidents, James Garfield, said these words, history is the unrolled scroll of prophecy. And then for a moment, let's look at Mary, verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her, Mary, to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Laid him in a manger. She simply was a woman who was pregnant, nine months. She was, it was time to have the baby. She had the baby. And the only place they had available for them was in the stalls where the animals were. And she took her child, God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% human, as we saw last week, she had been told her son would be the Savior. Here she is. She delivers her baby and simply lays him in a feed trough. God brought hope. Historical moment. God brought hope laid in a manger. As we look at this historical moment, some cool shoes. Make a great Christmas song, Christmas shoes. Oh, wait a minute. Somebody's already done that. This historical moment, I, I, I really... If you don't do anything else at Christmas, and I know it's, it's, I've already been to Christmas City three times, and uh, I want you to know, last time I was there, there were cars lined up all the way back to the turnoff because they'd heard about it. But just sitting there with my grandchildren, and that, it's, it's so magical. I went up there with them, and we're, they're going to talk to Santa Claus. And so they're standing there in line. It's two sisters, and they're standing there, and one's seven, and one's five. Such a magical moment for them. And they're turning to each other. I'm not saying a word. I'm just going through the line with them so I can take the picture and just be there with them. And the little five-year-old turns to her seven-year-old sister and says, Now, Ella, I'm going to ask for the swimming pool, right? <laughs> and Ella said, No, no, I'm asking for the pool. You're asking for the trampoline. <laughs> it's so. I mean, it, I still remember as a kid just being so excited about this, this day. And sometimes that's... that. And we didn't talk about Jesus in our home, but I, it was just something magical about this holiday. And for those of us who know Christ and in your family as, as believers, if nothing else, for you as an adult, I mean, your kids should enjoy it. And it's exciting for them. But I think as adults, it would really help you just to pause and think about what an incredible gift God gave me, the gift of hope the gift of eternal life. And that's why I called this series When History Met Hope. That's, that's what it is, is that God said we were hopeless in our, hopelessly lost in our sins and needed a Savior to be forgiven. And God said, not only will I do that, 
But he chose this method to come and to be shunned and to grow and be a Nazarene, one that people look down on, to be mocked, and then to be crucified in the way that he was. So we saw just a moment ago that night, that day that he was born, placed in a feed trough. But let's look at that announcement now, that a Savior is announced to the world. Again, not the way that human beings would announce it in one sense. Not the great way that we would make it known to all that God has come in the flesh to redeem mankind. Look at verse 8 and follow along with me. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you in this day, this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. By the way, just a little side note, that phrase, Christ the Lord, that's Greek for the Jewish Messiah. Christ and Messiah, or anointed one, are the same. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It's announced, and I think we talk about this every year, but it means so much because it's such a, such a message from God. We saw last week that he chose Mary and Joseph because of their godly people, who they were. They were favored by God, the grace of God, to be part of this great plan. But notice who he announces it to. He does not announce it to the priest. He does not announce it to the Romans. He does not announce it to the religious elite. Who does he announce it to? A group of shepherds. I want you to understand culturally what this means. Shepherds were outcasts. They were considered unclean, ceremonially unclean by the rest of the Jews because they lived and they dealt with dirty animals all day long. And they were away from temple like weeks at a time with their flocks. So they could not come to temple and get ceremonially clean. So they were considered unclean. They were such outcasts. A shepherd, this is really, again, ironic and showing us God's mind. Shepherds were not allowed to give testimony in court. They were considered untrustworthy. So God picks this group to announce to the Savior, Christ the Lord, Messiah your God is here. To this group, not the ones that we might choose, not Caiaphas, not Annas, not the Pharisees, not Caesar, not Herod, but the shepherds, the ones that were out there tough, hard-working men. They're the ones that are told. I want you to notice a response because you see the grace of God, the message of God. This is for everybody. But look at verse 9. Behold, an angel of the Lord is probably Gabriel, best in the context. Gabriel's the one that came to Mary. We don't know for sure, but probably Gabriel. Stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And notice what's the last phrase in verse 9. They were greatly afraid. If you, if you run that phrase, the glory of the Lord, through Scripture... What you notice is that every time man encounters it, you get this response. Notice it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. It's an incredible, it's called the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. It's incredible, unapproachable light. You're just out tending to your flock. You're doing your job. You're taking care of the sheep. And suddenly the glory of God is around you. These were tough dudes. And their response is they were terrified as would be you and I. It's interesting, it's a common theme throughout this story. What did, what did uh, the angel Gabriel say to Mary last week? Don't be afraid, Mary. 
I know this is news that's probably not easy to take. Don't be afraid. He says to the shepherds, don't be afraid. This is the glory of God. You don't have to be afraid. This, now look at verse 10. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Just for a moment, it's fascinating to me as I study Scripture and think about and let Scripture interpret Scripture. For a moment, I know we're not angels, and despite what great movies and others have taught even down through the years, we don't get wings and become angels. We will rule over angels when we go to heaven. We are God's children. Angels are created as messengers of God on our behalf. He created a, a finite number of them, a third of whom fell when Satan was thrown out of heaven. Gabriel, we mentioned last week, is one of only a, a two, three that are mentioned, Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer, that are mentioned for us in the Bible. So Gabriel is one, he's like, God, I need you to do something special, go handle this. He's now here announcing the birth of God to come to redeem. He's seeing the creator of the universe that he's always served as his messenger. He's seeing him come this way. It's interesting to think about. He's seeing the creator of the universe being a little baby laying in a feed trough, becoming a human being whom he spoke into existence, whom he created. He spoke the stars. He's seeing the great eternal logos. John 1.1 1, 1 describes him as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. It means before there was time. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Always had been. No beginning, no end. He was eternal God. And in verse 14 of John 1, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Gabriel's seeing that. He's here to announce that. It's a great privilege. Seeing the Word coming as a baby, Emmanuel. Notice his message to the shepherds in verse 10, 11, and 12. Number one, do not fear. The message about Jesus Christ is always to mankind. Don't be afraid. We're told by Paul in another place, we've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power. We're not afraid because of who our Savior is. Caesar Augustus may be the ruler of the world. That baby is God. Don't be afraid. You have nothing to fear. The glory of the Lord is shining around you, and I know that's terrifying, but relax. God is here. Let me give you a sign. You'll go see him. You'll see him laying in a manger covered in cloth. That's your Savior. Not an easy thing to wrap your mind around, but the angel is saying, don't be afraid. I bring you, and I notice what he says, I bring you good news. From time immemorial until Jesus comes back, the church exists for one reason. We got good news. The gospel, that's what the word means. Good news, not bad news, good news. Lord knows we get plenty of bad news. But in the midst of no matter how bad it is, as I said a moment ago earlier about a funeral, I can look any person in the eye, including myself in a mirror, and say, Jesus is good news. Even in the midst of the bad, it's always good with him. It's good news. And notice, I bring you good news about what? Great joy. Something we all need, we all want. At Christmas, we sing about it all the time. Joy to the world is probably sung more, played more than any other. You've got people singing it all over the place. They have no idea what they're singing. But God can give you something deep within that transcends every bad thing you face. doesn't mean you're happy and you're ecstatic when something bad happens. That's silly. But it means in the midst of difficult, bad circumstances, no matter what it might be, you have a deep inner peace, a calm that your God is God. He's omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. He's immutable, and he's eternal, 
He's transcendent. He's everything that you could ever need, and he's perfect, and he's your dad. He's your savior. He may be laying in a feed trough, but in that feed trough, you will find hope. Good news of great joy. And then the third thing, it's very important. It's for all people. Because if you were a Jew, which these shepherds probably were, you thought you were the only ones. We're God's chosen people. The Messiah is for us. By the way, Jews today still think that, that aren't born again, that their Messiah is coming, but it's for them, God's chosen people. The angel's announcement is God is here. The Messiah is here. Christ the Lord. It's good news of great joy for everybody, including the Caesar Augustus of the world. He's coming to die for the sins of all men. He is the Savior of the world. And look at the news. He's a Savior, not a soldier, not a reformer. He's a Savior. Christ the Lord, born today at Bethlehem. He brings peace. And then look at verse 13. It's not just Gabriel now. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, interesting, if you're the shepherds for a moment, you've got one angel there and you've got the glory of the Lord. Now, all of a sudden, you've got what? Normally, when you see this term, a multitude or a host, it means thousands upon thousands of voices there saying to you, verse 14, glory to God, nowhere else. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. This Savior that Gabriel, the angel, is telling you about, he brings peace on earth. Again, we've so messed this up throughout time. It doesn't mean absence of strife with each other. It means peace of heart with the God of gods. That the only place you're going to find forgiveness and peace with God and have the inner peace of God is in that manger, in that babe, because he is the savior of the world. You'll have peace of character. That's what shalom means, ultimately. Peace of character on earth. And the last thing he says to him there is, you go back to verse 12. Where do you find that? Lying in a manger. The Savior was born and the Savior was announced and every bit of it was about the manger. You find it there and it's the only place you can find it. Hope in a manger. We've seen a Savior announced. And that's, let's look at briefly a Savior is found starting in verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from him in the heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So the angels show up, Gabriel shows up, if it's Gabriel, an angel shows up, and then this multitude, thousands upon thousands of angels around them, and this incredible announcement to them that the Messiah has come, the Savior is here, and they go away. And these tough, hardworking shepherds say, all right, we've got, we've got to see this. And it says that with haste, I mean, they got up and they went after it. They're going to go find the Savior. Look at verse 15 again. The angels had gone away from the heavens. The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass. I want you to really notice the last phrase of verse 15, which the Lord has made known to us. They may have been outcast. They may have been ceremonially unclean. And they may have been considered untrustworthy by everybody else. But these guys got it. 
They understood this was a message from God. Yes, they'd been afraid as anybody would be, but they realized what they had just heard was from the lips of God, sent by his messenger angels, that the Savior has finally come, that the Messiah is here, and we are privileged to hear about it. Now, they didn't know if they were first, but they probably had an inkling because it said that unto you this day is born. So they're told first, and they're the first group that get to go see laid in a manger. For them, the Savior, they go, verse 16, with haste. And they found Mary and Joseph. And that word in Greek means they searched for a long time. They had to go and they had to look and they had to find. They went after it. It was important to them to do this. They searched and they found the babe lying in a manger. Where did they find the Savior? It had been laid for them. You will find it. They look and they found it in the most humble of all settings, in a feed trough because there was no room for them for the regular people. Put them out there with the animals. God wants us to understand how much he loves us, what grace is all about. So they find the Savior. They knew they came with haste. They found him lying in a manger. And then notice verse 17. They searched for him and notice their witness. When they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. They were told about the Savior. They went and found the Savior. And they, they went and told everybody they could find. There is a principle and a pattern here in my life and in your life. Years ago, when I got saved in 1970 and in the 70s, they had these uh, stickers. Every now and then you see something now like that. The stickers back then said, I found it. Everybody was getting, Christians were getting those and putting them on their bumper stickers on their cars, just said, I found it. And when people would ask you what you found, you were to, to give you an opportunity to tell them about Christ and a witness. Every now and now you'll see, every now and you'll see a sticker that says, found it with a question mark. They found the Savior, and then they told everybody they could tell. They made it widely known. They just didn't keep it within their circle. Anybody that would listen to them, they would tell. They made it widely known, and the people were just blown away by what they heard. But then notice their praise in verse 19. 19 and 20, 19, Mary, verse 20, the shepherds returned, went back to where they were, back to their jobs. But notice how they returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. They went back to their lives as you and I do when we're saved. God doesn't miraculously just take you and place you somewhere else. He saves you, so where you are, you'll praise him, you'll glorify him right there in the midst of your sphere of influence. That's always been Jesus' intent for his church. Praise God, glorify God where you are. Maybe someday I'll take you somewhere else, but for now, that's where you are, wherever it might be. This is our moment in time in 2011, going into 2012. And until Jesus comes back or we pass away, this is our moment in time in history to praise God, to glorify God, and be a witness to what we've heard, his word, what we've seen in the lives of others, and in our own lives, what God has done. Does it mean your life's always going to be good? No. When these shepherds went back, were they still outcasts? Absolutely. Were they still considered ceremonially unclean? Absolutely. But God knew better, didn't he? And they knew better. They had seen God with us. When you think about the wise men, the magi, the kings that came to the Savior, and they bring gifts, and the Bible says they went home a different way. 
They went home a different way to avoid, physically to avoid persecution. But I bet they were changed. They came to worship the king they had heard about. The shepherds searched, the shepherds found, and the shepherds went and praised God. That's what it means to be saved. You find the truth that sets you free, and then you want to make it widely known to everybody. Notice on your outline a quote I put there for you by Martin Luther. The mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. It's not what we would have done. It's not what any man would have come up with. It's grace, God with us, Emmanuel. Not just with us, but one of us. Hebrews puts it this way. It says we have a high priest that's been tempted in every way. We have 1 Corinthians 10, 13, yet without sin. And then Hebrews says everything you can go through, he understands. He empathizes. He was one of us. You see, Christmas is that great message. History meant hope. It's the greatest message that's ever been broadcast in any way. In Christmas 1906, forever, the wireless operators on U.S. Navy ships and merchant marine ships were called Sparks. The only thing they had ever heard over their headphones or on their radios was Morse code. Well, in Christmas 1906, a few days before Christmas, they were told, tune in Christmas Eve, you're going to hear something special. They didn't have any idea what it was. So they're all gathered around on their ships all over, waiting for this message on Christmas Eve. And a guy named Fessenden had found a way to broadcast music and voice. And for the first time, they heard over their radios a human voice speaking to them and music. And the music that Fessenden played was O Holy Night, a violin solo of O Holy Night. And he sang the last verse to them. And he read them Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, what we just read. For the first time, any radio broadcast, that's what they heard. Why? Because that's the greatest message ever been broadcast. God brought hope in a manger. He laid it in a manger. They found it in a manger.